Welcome to Musician. I'm your host, Andrew LaPau. Let's start the show. So um, I've been doing this podcast thing for a few years now. It's weird how time flies by, uh, but I'm putting out a lot more these days. Uh, and it's just been a really great run of uh, interviews. And what's weird about, I guess, the newer episodes, the 2018 episodes, um, it started off with people who have reached out to me. And uh, and I'm continuing with some old ones that I've done before, like people I just know. And, uh, and then I've gotten to reaching out to other people um, about doing these podcasts. And everyone's had a great vibe and energy and just talking about music in a studio setting uh, I really think brings out a lot and lets me discover what my studio sounds like especially with just you know people talking but then when it comes to he, like, you know playing uh, demos or, or things for other people to hear them on my monitors or through headphones and to just uh, I think this room that I that I have brings out a lot in, in performances when I have guests who perform and it's been a great run. So I just want to say, I'm really excited about dropping new episodes. There's going to be a lot this week. Uh, I'm going to put out one. Obviously today I have Paul Ballenbach on the show. Um, Paul Ballenbach is a really dear friend to me. I've known him since I was a teenager. Uh, he's been a kind of a guitar mentor. Um, I've taken really only a couple private lessons with him. I, I only think I've taken two private lessons with Paul. Um, but we go way back because we both taught um, for a long time every summer at the Litchfield Jazz Camp, um, which is a great summer camp for um, students wanting to learn about jazz music uh, performance, like really like for instrumentalists. Uh, and it's not just for kids. It's, you know, it's for, you know, adults who really want to expand their knowledge and, and work with a lot of great minds. Uh, and that was, uh, that was a thing that was really um, important in my formative years as a musician um, to really strive for the things that the faculty of that camp strove for. And, and also with just the people I met there. It's a, it's a great um, camp. So you can look that up on uh their website litchville jazz camp just google it uh anyway so that's just something i wanted to say as i put this uh thing out so i was up in new york where i'm from um visiting and i hit up paul and i was like hey you want to you know hang out get a coffee or whatever and he said yeah and i was like i also do this podcast and he said i'll just come up and hang out at my at my place uh, so we went over there in the East Village and uh, we just kind of chatted. And then he was like, you want to do the podcast? And I thought we were just going to hang and chat, but we ended up just doing a podcast. So this is off of my iPhone voice memos app. So any type of audiophile uh, type of musician listening in, uh, there's going to be a little bit of a, a, a hum halfway in. You know, I just set it up in the middle of the room and it got both of our voices. It's not like going to be supreme quality like uh, an sm7b that i'm talking on right now uh run through a uh 
Neve 1073 clone. <laughs> so it's not going to be anything like that. Uh, but it's going to be a great conversation. We talk about growing up as musicians, um, his time with Joey D. Francesco. He gives a great Joe Pass story. Um, so without further ado, here's my interview with Paul Ballenbach. Enjoy. <laughs> My family moved to New York when I was like three. Okay. So, no. New York State. Yeah, we were in, uh, actually across the county from where you grew up. We were in Hastings on Hudson. Hastings on Hudson, okay. Yeah, then, then we moved to India for a couple of years. And then we came back to Hastings, and then my family moved to D.C. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, I worked with people from Philadelphia a lot over the years, so I'm constantly getting folks, hey, man, you know, so you're from Philly. Do you know? I'm like, I'm not from Philly. I never lived in Philadelphia. Yeah. Or, or man, you're a D.C. cat, right? I'm like, I don't know, you know, really? Joey DeFrancesco used to make fun of me, man, all the time uh, about this stuff. He said, where are you from, man? And I'd be like, well, I'd tell him the story, and he didn't know what to say, you know? Because, like, for him, he's from Philadelphia, you Mm -hmm. know? And uh, so, so he would make the announcement. We don't know where he's from. (laughs) He's our guitar player. We don't know where he's from. It's a mystery, you know? But I claim either D.C. or New York, you know. I mean, I've lived here almost 20 years now, so most of my life has been in New York, even as, you know, like, what, eight years, ten years as a young youngster, and then 20. Where were you living when you picked up the guitar? Here. I was living in New York. Okay, in Hastings? Yeah, in Hastings, yeah. Do you, do you think that moving around so much was made you closer, have, like, a closer relationship with the guitar? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Because you're a only child, and your social life is completely in upheaval all the time. And we moved a lot, it seems. Um, But uh, yeah, the guitar is company, and also you know when you realize that you can make you have a connection with other people through through music. You know, it's funny how that works when you're young because you know you don't think about it. Mm-hmm. And unless you're really evil, you don't really have an agenda about it. You're just thinking, wow, this is cool. This is fun. Hey, you want to come over and play? Yeah, yeah, that sounds like, you know, sounds good, you know? Were you were you considered a prodigy at the time no. when you were playing? No, I mean, I certainly not by myself. Right, right. <laughs> I but mean, other people, people were, were, other people were encouraging. Yeah, they yeah. were encouraging. Not so much like, I remember I had this one music teacher who really, when I was in, in still a kid and he just he, he hated everybody and uh you know he, he i ask him a question i get excited about something oh that's this and he just tell me to shut up because he was just the cranky guy right? mm-hmm. i got back in by 
coming to school sick one day and throwing up in his classroom. <laughs> so, but that was kind of funny. Man. But um, no, you know, it's just like I said, I got a lot of encouragement from uh, from people my age. And then as I started to get into jazz, it was a lot more, um, a lot more like uh, the older players must have heard something in my playing because they would hire me. They were always really, most of them were really, really nice to me. Now this would be both in New York and in, in DC. And New York was more like older rock guys because that's what I was playing at the mm-hmm. time, you know, and go and jam with these guys who were like really had their stuff together. Were these jams at in the, like the Hudson Valley? Yeah, jams yeah, yeah, yeah. It was well, it was like in somebody's house. You know? Okay, it was usually, and then, then you know, we we get some gigs like you go play an American Legion somewhere right. or something like that, or you know, just go go. You know, oh hey, you should hear this kid play. Hey kid, come on up here and play. You know, you okay, play. Um, but those folks were always really encouraging, and especially once I got to D.C., man, um, you know, I was trying to figure out, you know, you're young, so you're trying to figure out, what what do you want to do with this? Is this music we want to do, or is it, how am I going to survive? You know, you have to get a job. You right. have to make a choice. You're, you're leaving high school. You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, you know, panic-stricken. So I figured I'd try music for a little while and just see what happened with it. Um, but it was a lot of it was just... Uh, being encouraged by those older players and having them. So it was really an experiment. You didn't know if you're going to do it. No clue. Yeah. No clue. I figured, uh, I figured I would give it, uh, well, when I first made the decision to go for it, I think it was probably 18, 17 or 18 to Mm -hmm. kind of just, you know, like, this is cool. Let me really work hard at this. And then maybe, maybe like, uh, by the time I got to be 20, I was out, you know, trying to make some jam sessions and just try to try to play, try to play better. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the uh, the older cats who were playing great, I said to myself, if I can play anywhere near as good as them, by the time I'm 23, I'll kind of stick with it. And if I'm still sucking, mm-hmm. I didn't even think of it like career-wise. Like, you know, right. if what, how am I going to make a living? Are people going to hire me? But. Uh, um, you know that was kind of my cutoff point was like you know but things worked out okay i guess so you know i'm still doing it <laughs> and when were you in miami that would have been the late 70s up into 1981 so okay. I, went, I went for two years was that in your early 20s when you went no there? no i was uh, i think i first went i was 19 and i okay. came back when i was uh for real i can't i left when i was 21 yeah so was it just not happening for you down there well it's just not what i wanted to do and i think the thing that really it kind of shocked me a little bit. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I learned a lot of stuff there. Mm-hmm. The guitar teacher there, Randall Dollahan, was a real taskmaster for me. And, you know, he just put his foot all the way up my butt, basically. You know, mm-hmm. From the very first lesson, he was like, come on, you know. And there were some really good guitar players there at the time, my age, you know, like just guys who were miles ahead of yeah. me. And I was just thinking to myself, wow. So... Whatever it was that happened, it made me want to really work hard to get better. Usually, you know, like some people, if you, if they, you tell them they, they can't do something, they say, okay, fine, and they go away. Me, you tell me you can't do something, I'll be like, oh, let me see if yeah. it's really the case, yeah. you know? So, yeah, I kind of moved forward with it that way. But uh, what I found is that the, I, I, I went to Miami from D.C., and... Uh, the guys that I was playing with when I was 18, 17, 18 years old in D.C., 
they didn't go off to college. They just started doing gigs and making jam sessions and practicing all day and doing whatever else, you know, they were doing as young musicians. And I would come back on these breaks and we'd hang out and play. And every time they, they were just killing me, they were playing so much better. Like their growth was ridiculous compared to mine. And I just realized after a couple of years at Miami that, uh, that if I wanted to, to, to actually do it, I had to do it. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I, sitting around and trying to be in school wasn't necessarily gonna work for me at that time. Right. And you know, I think things are different now, of course. Uh, you don't have the same like sort of jam session, non-school oriented stuff that, that, that you had back in the uh, early 80s. You know, mm-hmm. Now everybody's in school and that's where they make their, right. their networking connections basically, for the most part. So, But I think at the time that's just what was up with that, man. It was uh, just a question of, of uh, making it, and it wasn't a conscious decision. I just I came, came back from school and I never went back. <laughs> that was it, you know. So you went back to DC. Yeah, I went back to DC, and, and uh, you know, wound up, you know, in a oh, I got some crazy stories. In a uh, in a you know, like a I needed a place to live. My folks said, "You're 20 years old. If you're not going to go to college, you can't stay around here. You got to get a job." And then shortly after that, I was out the door. I was mm-hmm. like, "Okay, so hey, hey, man, uh, can I can I?" crash on your couch for a while mm-hmm. kind of thing you know and the first place was this crazy group home man <laughs> there were about eight people living in this place it was uh like three or four stories high in dc like in a like it was about three blocks from the park that they called murder park at that time so it was kind of it was kind of a wild neighborhood uh sometimes it could be um but these guys man they were they were uh they were <laughs> I don't even know what to say about him. I, let's put it this way. There was one guy. I was sleeping on the couch in sort of in the living room, and you could close the doors, and it was like a dining room. It was a big, big place. So this one dude had a, a, a job as a bike messenger, and he was, uh, so all day he was riding his bike around D.C., and he would have to get up pretty early, so, but he was also a, an accordion player and a pianist. Mm-hmm. So at, at night... He would uh, plug his accordion into an amplifier and practice the accordion for two hours, like really loud, like polkas and shit like that, mm-hmm. to an amp, right? Mm-hmm. I missed most of that, but sometimes I was around for that. But in the mornings, he'd play on this out-of-tune piano, like 6 o'clock in the morning, right next to my head, basically, yeah. you know? Like like Chopin and Bach and stuff. And he, he, was, he was cool, but I mean, the piano was in terrible condition, yeah. right? But he slept with a hatchet under his bed. <laughs> and eventually they kicked him out because he was just too out. He was yeah. obviously unbalanced or whatever. But, you know, experiences like that when you're in your early 20s and you're trying to figure out what to do as a musician, I mean, it kind of, you start to look at uh, people a little differently. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny, man. But, yeah, so, you know. And, but from that, from that, actually from that place, there was a, a jam session that I used to go to at this place called the One Step Down, which was an incredible club, man. I mean, it's, it's out of business now for many years, but uh, that was like Jazz Central for D.C., and I, I heard many, many great musicians play there, and I met a lot of cats there. Um, and sometimes a chance to sit in and eventually, you know, some of my own gigs at the club, but they had a jam session uh, every uh, Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon. And so a lot of times the guys who were doing the headlining would come in, like on a Saturday, and they just check out, you know, what was happening, you know, yeah. that kind of a thing. It was cool. 
but uh, the, the guy who was running the jam sessions was a guy named Lawrence Wheatley. And uh, he's like an unknown hero, basically. It, it, people in D.C. know him. Outside of that, not so much. But he played with Charlie Parker yeah. when, when Bird would come through D.C. to play. Great piano player, great interesting composer, eccentric character. Mm -hmm. But Lawrence lived two blocks from me when I moved into this house. And when I started going to these jam sessions and he figured out I was living close, I'd get a call from him, what are you doing today? I'd say, oh, uh, nothing, man, what, what's going on? He said, why don't you come on over, we'll hang. And man, he gave a lot of his time and energy to me. And it was incredibly educational because we'd sit there and we'd just play and he'd teach me tunes. Man, he'd ask me to play stuff and he'd sit there and he'd suggest things. And he was always very mysterious. Like one time I was playing something, he just stopped. I forget what tune we were playing. He just stopped and he looked at me and he goes, take a solo on A. And I was like, what does that mean? Take a solo in A on an A string, the note A, what does that mean, you know? Yeah. So I don't know, that kind of a, uh, an experience was invaluable. And sometimes I'd spend eight hours over there. We'd, we'd play for like, you know, maybe four hours, take a break, have some lunch, play for another four hours, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I think he liked to be able to play with somebody, of course, you know, because if he wasn't working, then he invite me to gigs, you know, yeah. and eventually hire me for some things. So that kind of an experience, you don't get that in school. You know? That's like that's like some real personal attention. And I was just lucky. The guy yeah. liked me somehow, you know. Yeah. yeah. So did you did you ever go on the road, like in in America from D.C. or was it mostly in D.C. that you were? Well, at that, at that time, probably the the only travel that I was doing. It was a few years later uh, when Gary Thomas, the great saxophone player, flute player, and composer from Baltimore, mm -hmm. started to, to record. And then he got some tours, so we went to Europe a few times. Mm -hmm. He didn't do very much um, in the States because he was kind of uh, uh, not as well accepted. His music was not as well accepted, I believe, in mm -hmm. the U.S. as it was in Europe. Mm -hmm. It's you know, pretty adventurous for the time mm -hmm. and still remarkably unique. Um, but that's just you know, the way it went for him. Um, so for me, it was more regional stuff like uh, Philly, sometimes in Richmond, um, Baltimore for sure. And then, you know, people that I knew that you'd meet or they'd, they'd hear about you, they'd say, you know, hey, man, can you can you get to uh, Cincinnati? Man, I've got some gigs. You can come stay at my place and we can, you know, play a little bit. So that kind of a thing, you mm -hmm. know, just random little things. And when I started working with Joey DeFrancesco was when I really started traveling a lot. That would have been 1990. Okay. Yeah. So I was a little older. I mean, I had you know 10 years of experience under my belt as, right. as a professional player already. And who were your mentors at this time? Guitar mentors. Was this after? Mm -hmm. Did you you know know Joe Pass and you know like? Oh yeah, I knew Joe. Yeah. Joe, Joe. I, you know, I can't say I really had uh, any really famous guitar mentors uh, at that time, like in the early years. Mm -hmm. um, there were a lot of local guys in the D.C. area who were. Who were really really nice to me um, a lot of those guys were in um, what they call the service bands like the Army Blues Band or the uh, Navy Commodores the Airmen of Note um, the guys I think about are a guy named Rick Whitehead who's with the Airmen of Note um, uh, Steve Abshire the Navy Commodores another guy Paul Wingo and there was a couple of other cats too and they were constantly getting called at the last minute 
mm-hmm. to uh, to go play for the president, right. or you know, there's some ball that they have to play or some function. And since they're in the service, they have to go. They right. can't turn down the gig. So I was always getting these last minute calls. Hey man, you know, can you play for me tonight? And uh, another cat, O'Donnell Levy, who has passed on recently. Uh, he was a Baltimore guy. But he played in D.C. a lot, and he was unbelievable. His main gig was with Herbie Mann for years, and he was like, I mean, just an incredible natural musician. And he was really nice, you know, just in terms of encouragement. You know, those guys would always ask me to sit in. Sometimes they asked me to cover gigs for them, mm-hmm. and I played quite a lot for O'Donnell uh, over the years. You know, when, when he had stuff that he couldn't make. Um, so in that sense, those were the mentors. And it wasn't that they were showing me anything, they were right. giving me work, and then of course I go to hear them play and try and get as much information as mm-hmm. I possibly could. You know? But later on, it was, uh, um, I took um, a couple of lessons with Pat Martino, and he's become a, 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 a good friend and uh, somebody that, that has always been very encouraging for me. And Joe Pass was super cool, man. Yeah, He was really cool, I mean, I took, can I tell this story about, yeah. about Joe Pass? Yeah, please do. Yeah. So you didn't know this was going to happen today. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> no, know it was going to happen today either. Yeah. Man. It's going to happen. Um, uh, but uh, so there used to be a club in D.C. called Charlie's Georgetown. And it was uh, Charlie Bird. I don't know whether his family sunk some money into it uh-huh. or they used his name or whatever. But it was, it was a cool club. They had uh, the main room where the acts would come and play. They usually play seven nights, or sometimes they'd have two weeks there, mm-hmm. right? And then they had the uh, the bar area, which is where there was a, a piano, and initially it was just a piano bar, but then gradually a bass player gets added, maybe a drummer, and then people are coming out to sit in. Mm-hmm. So I would go there and hang and play all the time if I wasn't already working. Sometimes I'd do the gig, they'd ask me to come in and play. Um, but I got to meet a lot of cats who were playing in the main room as a result of that, like Jim Hall, Monty Alexander, mm-hmm. Um, and and Joe, who would come and play solo guitar, you know, Emily Remler was in there. You know, got to meet her. She was really really cool, super nice. So I asked Joe for a lesson, and uh, you know, he was really cool. He was like, "Okay, kid." Uh, I said, "How much?" He said, "Well, you know, there's a cigar shop across the street from my hotel. So just go in there and pick me up a box of whatever the hell they were. I don't know what they were. Some kind of cigar." And I was like, you know, twenty. Or 20, maybe I was 22 at that uh-huh. time, you know? So I go to the cigar place, and of course, I'm scrawny and hungry and, uh-huh. you know, not rich. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I walk in and I take a look at these cigars, they're like 200 bucks a box. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I was like, okay, well, my lesson's in 15 minutes. Okay, let me just go up and see what happens. So I went up, and of course, Joe's not stupid. He sees me come in with a guitar with no box yeah. of cigars. He doesn't say anything. Yeah. He's just kind of checking the situation out. So he's like, okay, kid, play something for me. So I played a bunch of stuff, and, you know, we had a good lesson. We hung out and talked a little bit. He showed me, a, I said, what are you working on? He said, I do stuff like this. Uh-huh. You know, he told me some, some, I showed him a chord melody I'd worked out that had some wild, weird stretches in, in it, and he was like, I can't do those chords because I can't open my hands up you know mm-hmm. um so come to the end of the lesson and he's like okay kid you know it's about an hour and a half he was very generous with his time he says okay kid uh i think that's about it you know go practice so i'm putting my guitar away and so i'm very nervous and i'm joe um uh, I'm, I'm really sorry man but uh like i went to uh, get those cigars and uh, i just i had no idea they were going to be so expensive i just I, I really i have 20 bucks <laughs> and he took a look at me and he goes, 
that's fine, kid. Just don't tell anybody. <laughs> that's great. And then he said, are you hungry? He took a look at me. He said, are you hungry? I said, yeah, I'm starving, man. He said, come on, let's go get some breakfast in the hotel. And he used my 20 bucks to buy me breakfast in the okay. hotel. That's cool. So he was a sweetheart, you know, yeah. in that sense, man. And, you know, I saw him many times after that, and he was always really, really cool. He was, oh, yeah, there's that kid that can play that chord that I can't. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> which, awesome. was, which was pretty funny. Yeah. Man. Yeah, I was sad when he passed on, but, you know, it's, it happens. Where was he in your, like, when you were really just digging in and starting out as a guitar player? Because you're such a phenomenal solo guitar player, and he is kind of the king of that. Like, Mm -hmm. was he, would you just dig into him for, like, weeks on end and just kind of, like, focus on Joe Pass? It wasn't conscious for me. Yeah, yeah, but yes, basically. I, mean, I, I was a big influence. I always wondered that about that about you because every time I see you, I'm like, you, you play it so effortlessly, yet there's so much information and so much movement going on. Like, I wonder if you just have something going on in your brain that that a lot of other guitar players just don't have going on. Oh, I don't that know. You <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, it, I mean it as a compliment. Like you, you, the way you can pick up on things or hear harmony. My or, my wife would say, "Yeah, he's got something else going on." <laughs> <in his brain." laughs> Whatever that is. Yeah. Well, um, I, like I said, I got lucky with the, with, in a way, with the harmony thing. Um, Joe Pass certainly was a huge influence on me. I mean, I, I went to hear him every opportunity that I could. You know. Um, and certainly I listened to a lot of his records and you know I didn't particularly sit down and study it mm-hmm. but you could hear what he was doing and then so I would yeah. try to imitate it you know yeah. um, you know the thing that that, that that taught me the most about solo guitar was just by circumstance as much as anything else because I mean yeah I sat down at one point and I wrote a bunch of things out and I practiced the chord melodies and I worked some things out but that's because I had these gigs and it was the first solo gig I ever played. It was at a, a bookstore in D.C. And where, where they had the guitar player and the band, they actually had bands up there, they, not with drums, of course, but like, you know, maybe a flute player and a guitar player or even a keyboard player, was the upstairs of the bookstore had a cafe. And it was open, open to the bookstore with a railing. And they would put the musicians on the other side of the railing, like on the ledge, uh-huh. overlooking the bookstore. Now, okay, you had a little space. You had maybe three or four feet of this ledge. Mm-hmm. And I think eventually they had to ban drinks because somebody, you know, knocked a drink over and, like, whacked a customer on the head or uh-huh. something. But it was, like, really kind of precarious. And to get there, you had to climb over the, the, uh, the railing and everything. So my first solo guitar gig was in this joint. And it was, like, a four-hour gig. And I uh-huh. got done playing my two or three chord melodies that I knew... And I realized that, gee, I'm not even done with the first set yet. What yeah. am I going to do? So I did this gig quite a bit. And then other gigs like that, that were solo guitar or duo with a flute player. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that situation just, you know, you're kind of forced to come up with stuff. So what can I do? I can walk a bass line. I can right. walk a bass line on a blues for a while. Uh, oh, wow, that's something I need to practice. Let me go home and practice it. So uh-huh. it was uh, like instant feedback, basically, right. you know, as far as that goes, you know. Um, yeah, so, but then I got lucky because I played with a lot of piano players. It's kind of unusual in a way, because these days you think guitar and piano don't play together so much, but we're talking about the 1980s, and, uh, you know, people played with each other no matter what, and so there were these guys in D.C. that they had solo piano gigs, and 
of course, they wanted company. I mean, their cats are working in a restaurant six nights a week, you know, four hours a night. Mm -hmm. Great. Wow, man, it's a great gig. But, you know, you're playing by yourself. That could be a drag. Yeah. So they would always say, hey, man, if you're not doing anything, come by my gig. We can't play loud, but, you know, we can, mm -hmm. we can get into some stuff. So I had a chance to kind of observe how they were approaching harmony. Mm -hmm. and, and then... You know, if I heard something that I recognized, I could practice it at home. It's like, you know, kind of direct information, yeah. you know. And a lot of those cats, um, this one guy in particular, after a while in D.C. that I worked with as a sub, his name is Dick Morgan. And Dick is, was like, he was really like Oscar Peterson and, and Les McCann kind of put together. He could be super funky and soulful and or he had tons of chops. Yeah. And he would never tell you what he was going to play. He would just start playing and you had to figure it out. And guys who'd been working with him for a long time knew his sort of his yeah, what he would bag do. of tricks so they could follow him. But me, I was like a sub. I was like, right. well, what's he, what key, what key is that? Yeah. He, he wouldn't even look at you. He'd just start playing. And then, then your time to solo, he'd just give you a nod. You know? <laughs> so I think those experiences, I learned to listen carefully for the harmony because, I mean, these guys weren't playing simple harmonic stuff. I mean, it was standards, but they were really, you know, you had to pay attention, otherwise you were going to play the wrong thing. Yeah. Really, it would be really easy to do that. You know? yeah. I studied ear training also. Uh, right. With a guy in Baltimore, man, Dr. Asher's Lotnick, and uh, that was the thing that really changed my situation. One of the other guitar players that I was subbing for recommended it, because that's the the whole pivot exactly yeah. yeah 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 where you learn to sing the outlines of changes and then you learn to recognize the uh the tones in relationship to the chords can that be found anywhere these days um because it seems like an esoteric you know kind of like a cult music knowledge yeah it, it is i suppose um i'm getting ready to do uh mike's master classes uh one with that specific thing in mind, but I got to get my singing up so I don't. Mike Ladon? No, it's uh, it's actually it's called Mike's Masterclasses dot com. Oh, okay. And it's uh, it's, it's all guitar stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a, he has hundreds of educational videos. You know, for I did a few of them, but I haven't done an ear training one. And I mean, of course, I teach it, mm -hmm. right? You know, but uh, I think you're right. I don't think anybody's really been able to put something out. A few people have tried books. And because uh, a lot of people study with this guy, you know, especially in the mid-Atlantic area. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I was in your ear training class. That's the, right. That's when you know. That's when, when you were exposed to that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That stuff is. I mean, that changed the way I hear music, the way I function as a musician, and it's certainly I, I would like to say it's you know my strongest asset as far as that's concerned. Just being able to hear, and I don't have perfect pitch. If I had perfect pitch, it wouldn't be an issue, you know. But, you know, you can develop really good pitch, really mm -hmm. good relative pitch, even to the point of recognizing, you know, the notes and keys particularly, you know, which is like, you know, getting close to perfect pitch. But it's not biological. It's learned, you know. So how did you get picked up by Joey DeFrancesco? Oh, that's another good story, man. So um, it was a Sunday. <laughs> I was living in D.C., outside D.C. in Arlington. My then wife and I had decided that we were going to drive to the Maryland shore. It was summertime. And this is in the days before cell phones, right? So um, uh, we're driving, and it's about a three-hour drive, so it's not close. And there's tons of traffic. You know, you can't even really get out of the city, you know. 
So after a while, we say, you know, screw it. Let's just, you know, let's go back home. Let's buy a paper and just lay around and read the paper and relax all day. Okay, cool. When I got home, there was a message on my answering machine from the Charlene Jazz Society. And the message was, uh, yeah, hi, Paul. This is uh, Charles Cassells from the Charlene Jazz Society. And uh, we're doing a 100th anniversary of jazz concert at the Kennedy Center tonight. And, but we didn't realize that we needed a guitar player for a couple of the groups. So um, if you're available, can you give us a call back and sound check is at four this afternoon? Mm -hmm. So I called him back and went and did the gig. And one of the bands was Joey DeFrancesco. And I guess he liked what I did. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, so <laughs> think if I'd have gone to the beach, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> who knows what might yeah. have happened? I mean, you know. Well, that seems faded that there is traffic and, you know, I don't yeah, know. Man. That's it's, great. It's kind of, it's kind of, like it's, it's definitely kind of like you know, it's not really right place, right time. It's more like yeah, that's just luck getting pushed in that direction. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I learned an enormous amount from Joey. I mean, if I had, if I was to speak to mentors, man, uh, I mean, Joey was a huge mentor for me, both musically and professionally. I mean, he recommended me for lots of recordings, put me on, put my tunes on his recordings. Uh, you know, featured me prominently in, in his groups, and he just showed me a lot of stuff, yeah. man. I mean, like just the stuff you can't even you can't even say what it what it is because you're sitting there and you're watching this dude create all this music every night, night after night, and it's always great. And so you start to observe. You're like, wow, how's he moving his hands like that? What was that chord change he just played? You know, mm -hmm. you know, how the hell do you know all those tunes? You know? And you were also watching him. Evolved too as a musician, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of changing his sound a little bit. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I definitely had an effect. I mean, not to blow my own horn, but <laughs> I think, I think, because I was coming from a background when I started with him, he was much more of a straight ahead, standards, bebop, blues kind of guy. I mean, not really, he, really Jimmy Smith influenced. I mean, I, that's what he was coming out of. Yeah. Although, as I started working with him, I began to realize that he was so heavily into Miles Davis that. Mm -hmm. that that a whole lot of that was in his playing mm -hmm. that people, a lot of people didn't get that right away. Mm -hmm. They didn't get that like, yeah, wow, wait a minute, man, that, that whole thing he just played was kind of like more like Miles and less like Jimmy Smith, uh -huh. you know? But, um, what's my point? <laughs> um, You're saying not to toot your own horn. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think I came into it from, uh, uh, from the standpoint of, of uh, being more of an avant-garde or I don't know, open kind of player. I, don't, I wasn't yeah. really coming from a straight-ahead bebop kind of a background at all. Um, I mean, I played quite a bit with Gary Thomas before I ever, you know, met Joey. Um, and his sort of aesthetic for playing kind of rubbed off on a lot of us in, in, in the mid-Atlantic at that time. The idea of playing in between the cracks of both the harmony and the rhythm, right? Sort of like being within the song, but still being able to float freely around it. Mm -hmm. So when I when I got with Joey, you know, it was kind of like, wow, this is, I'm, I really have to rein all this in. But he, he liked those kinds of things, you know, the, the, the kinds of things that I was trying to do. And I, I began to notice after a while that he was going, you know, going kind of in the same direction at some point, you know, which was really interesting to me. So, I mean, I would like to hope that I had some influence, you know, playing, Should, um, playing. I think you could be sure that you did. Yeah, <laughs> so, I, I mean, you you played with him for straight for over a decade, right? Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. it was about fifteen years. I mean, I started with him in nineteen ninety, I believe, 
And sort of like my last regular gig with him was probably, I mean, I left for a short period in 2003, I believe. And then I kind of came back in 2000, 2002, and then 2003 I came back. Yeah, that'll be cool, I think. Cool. Yeah. All right, well, uh, you rolling? Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, so I don't know what I'm going to play, but I'll play something. Then it'll wind up being it'll something. It'll wind up being something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sounds good.
I want to thank Paul Ballen back again for coming on the podcast. Um, go check out his music. Go uh, go Google Paul Ballenbach. Go check out the work that he's done with Joey D. Francesco. He also works with Jeff Tane Watts and uh, many others. So thank you again and stay tuned next time for the next episode.